Mountain Hill Radio contains graphic language and scenes some listeners may find troubling. Listener discretion is advised. Everything you are about to hear is absolutely fictional. The town of Mountain Hill is just that, a town. The people of Mountain Hill are just people, and never has there been a true case of a monster stealing a human's skin. The forests do not contain fairy creatures from another world, the streets are not terrorized by monsters who only come out at night, and the water is perfectly safe to swim in. You are safe here. We promise. This is Mountain Hill Radio. The night begins as it always does. The group of four make a plan, knowing without a single doubt in their minds that the plan they make is probably meaningless. They make it anyway, knowing the cost of moving without one. Lyra directs Colin toward the eastern edge of town, Rufus to the north, and decides she and Dorothy will patrol the south and west together. They begin their nights this way to ensure every citizen in town is in their homes, the shades drawn and doors locked tight. They've known the rules of living in Mountain Hill for so long, they no longer question them. It's tradition built on old superstitions, and for a town full of people that, for the most part, had never seen anything else of the world, this is what safety is. This is what normal is. But Dorothy wonders, as they walk, how they could possibly live their lives like this. From dusk until dawn, the streets of Mountain Hill are empty, the entire population blissfully ignorant to the creatures which wish to hunt them and devour them. How do they not know what's going on? Dorothy asks. Can't they hear when the monsters come out at night? Even now, in the still dark evening air, something screeches in the forest. Lyra shrugs. I'm not sure. It might be the magic that protects this place, or it might just be that they have no frame of reference for what the rest of the world is like. They might think it's totally normal to hear that kind of stuff. Or maybe they can't hear it at all. Dorothy frowns. And how is it that they are also compliant with curfew? I don't know a single teenager to ever obey that kind of rule. There aren't many teenagers here, Lyra explains. This town... A majority of the families that once lived here have moved and settled in other parts of the world. Rufus's family did the same. Over the past 50 or so years, Mrs. Bell says more and more people are wanting to leave. She believes they can sense that there is a great evil moving towards this place, and their instincts are telling them to flee as fast as they can. 
There are a handful of families with kids, like the Roenfelts, and the woman who owns the grocery store has a 16-year-old grandson she's been raising. There are a handful of other teens, too, but the majority of the population here are folks who have lived here so long, they don't want to be anywhere else. This is all they know, all they've ever known, and all they will ever know. Dorothy mulls that over. So, they obey the curfew because they've always done so? Lyra nods. They don't know any better. She gestures ahead to a row of houses with our curtains drawn, lights dimmed or out completely. But I have a feeling they don't want to know any better. Mrs. Bell says part of the magic that surrounds this place wills people to forget the strangeness they see or hear. But that doesn't stop them from seeing or hearing. I'm confused. So do they or don't they? Lyra shrugs. Dunno. Never asked. Dorothy can't help but laugh at that. Fair enough. They continue on, Lyra showing Dorothy the parts of town she'll be patrolling once she's on her own. She explains their routine, meeting before their patrols to discuss anything important to watch out for, then a couple hours patrolling on their own, and finally one more hour spent patrolling together, double-checking the center of town. She teaches Dorothy the different signals they have, the various whistles to call to the others if they find something of significance. For the most part until last night, we haven't really had much issue patrolling. There have been a lot more creatures making appearances, but absolutely nothing we can't handle. Nothing until the mark, Dorothy surmises. Lyra nods. Whatever those things are, they're fast and strong and damn intelligent. And indestructible, it sounds like, Dorothy frowns. What are we supposed to do if they attack again? Lyra ponders this. Well, when you rode into town, it seemed like they were overwhelmed by the sound of your bike, so I'm thinking we need something big and loud to scare them off. I mean, I can just ride my bike around town, Dorothy suggests. That would keep them away, right? It probably would, but until we see them, I don't want to risk making a bunch of noise and driving other creatures out of hiding. We don't know if they'll even be back. Dorothy nods. She doesn't know if she agrees with Lyra's thinking, but she doesn't want to push her luck by questioning her. She still doesn't know the dynamic of this group, still hasn't quite found her place in it, but she knows for certain that Lyra is their leader. Even without Mrs. Bell saying as much, Dorothy can sense the strength Lyra possesses. She is a natural-born leader, and Dorothy believes that she knows best. Or as close to best as she can know, given the circumstances. The two hours they spend patrolling the area go by without a hitch, and Dorothy finds that she is a little disappointed by that. She wanted to fight something to test her skills and do what she came here to do. But even as they meet with Colin and Rufus and patrol the center of town, the night remains still, quiet, and uneventful. An hour later, they part ways, Colin and Lyra heading back to Lost Fiction, and Rufus and Dorothy heading to the house they now share. Dorothy didn't have much with her but the clothes on her back and her cousin's godforsaken cat. She has a small backpack full of everything she took from her apartment, but that's it. Everything else she'll have to find and buy. Fortunately for her, Rufus already outfitted the spare room with a bed and some other sparse furniture. He says it was going to be a guest room, but he also confessed that he'll have no need of it. My family won't come up here, and they're damn angry I moved back here, he told her when he showed her the room earlier. She wanted to ask more, but found that she didn't know if she should. She didn't want him prying into her business or her messy family life, so what right did she have to ask? It was too quiet tonight. Rufus says, eyes roaming the neighborhood carefully as they walk. Dorothy frowns. This isn't normal? What about any of this is normal? He sighs and shakes his head. 
We normally find at least one or two creatures, but it's like they've all gone into hiding. Dorothy's stomach dips. What if there's something out there even they are afraid of? Then we better hope we can be even scarier than that thing. Colin collapses on the couch, exhaustion weighing heavily on his bones. He didn't get enough sleep today, and the anxious feeling gnawing on his gut probably isn't too keen on releasing him anytime soon. When he was patrolling, Colin found a child's toy, sitting at the tree line at the edge of town. If it had been anywhere else, he probably would have overlooked it and carried on with patrolling, but the small blue dinosaur was set there on purpose. Colin knew that without a doubt in his mind. Though, of course, whatever message the thing that left the toy there was trying to convey was foggy. Did it mean to warn him off? Tell him to stop looking? Or was something out there, the imps, perhaps, trying to tell him something else? Whatever the message was, Colin had collected the toy and tucked it into his jacket pocket. Now, as he sits on the couch in the apartment above Lost Fiction, he reaches into his pocket and pulls out the dinosaur. He flips it over and finds, scrawled in childish handwriting across its stomach, the name Sammy. Though he had known what he would find there, Colin still can't help the feeling of dread eating away at him. What was the point of this? The more he thinks about it, the more he spirals, and finally his eyes are drooping. He falls asleep, still holding the blue dinosaur in his hands. Lyra wakes with a jolt, her body shivering and covered in sweat. Without looking, she finds the clicker on the lamp next to her bed and tugs on it, bathing the room in a pale yellow light. Her eyes scan the floor around her, and there... She slides off of the bed, squatting on the ground at the foot of her bed and scooping up a ball of blue yarn. Her heart is thundering as she glances around the room again, searching for whoever left this strange item here. The window on the other side of the room is closed, the salt on the sill undisturbed, but she has a feeling whoever or whatever left this here would be able to get past that salt with no problem whatsoever. With a sigh, she rises to her feet and sets the ball of yarn on her dresser, It's a perfect ball, round and wrapped tight by whoever wrapped it. Her eyes narrow on the frayed end where it sticks up from beneath the piece it was tucked under. She doesn't know what this is, or what it means, and as she feels exhaustion settling on her shoulders, she decides she doesn't really care to figure it out right now. She tumbles back into bed, pulling her blankets up to her chin. Sleep finds Lyra quickly, and as they do most nights, so do the visions. Run! she screams, her voice hoarse and broken. Get out of here! She can't see who she's yelling at, can't even see what she's fighting. Her breathing is harsh, the breaths painful as they saw in and out of her chest. But still, she fights, even as the thing descends upon her. Lyra! She hears her name, hears someone shouting at her from beyond the dark mass that slashes at her. She swings her arms, the metal of her back colliding with, then falling through, the thing in front of her as if it were made of smoke. She stumbles, not quick enough to catch herself as she too falls through the inky black mass before her. Her body resists, the black fog solidifying around her, keeping her upright. With the darkness surrounding her, all she can hear is screams. The volume steadily increases until Lyra can bear it no longer. She claps her hands over her ears, squeezing her eyes shut as she falls to her knees, begging whatever forces may be out there that this torment stop. For the second time that night, Lyra wakes with a gasp. This time, she finds she is not alone. 
Colin stands above her, shaking her shoulders gently as he calls her name. You're safe, he's saying, as her bleary eyes try to focus on his face. Lyra, it's okay. She swears, pushing him away and bolting upright. She barely makes it to the bathroom before she's hurling up the contents of her stomach, the dinner she ate only a handful of hours before. Colin follows her, holding back her hair as she vomits. He pats her shoulder awkwardly, and if this situation weren't so damn awful, Lyra might have laughed. Finally, when she's finished, she collapses against the side of the tub, flushing the toilet and pressing a shaking hand to her forehead. Colin says nothing, just puts toothpaste on her toothbrush and hands it and a glass of water to her. She accepts both, rising to her feet. I'll, uh, Colin says, trailing off. I'll be in the living room. Lyra nods her thanks, and Colin slips out silently, shutting the door behind him. What was that? She thinks as she brushes her teeth and washes out her mouth. She stares at herself in the mirror, sees her freckles stark against her pale skin. There are bags under her eyes, purple shadows that weren't there even just a few hours ago. She knows it was a vision. Knows she's not going to stop being plagued by them. She just wishes she could make any sense of them, beyond the horrifying images she saw each night. Tonight had been the worst by far. She recalls the feeling of sinking into that inky blackness and shudders. It had been so cold and dark and listened. Empty. Like the moment she fell into that darkness, she was in a void. Lyra finishes up in the bathroom and heads out into the living room. She finds Colin doodling in the codex, drawing one of the mark in frighteningly vivid detail. She collapses on the couch beside him and leans her head back, closing her eyes for a moment. Are you okay? Colin asks, and she looks at him. He's wearing a white t-shirt and his sweatpants, and a pair of reading glasses he only wears late at night. He pushes the glasses up onto his forehead, and she smiles a little at how much he reminds her of a grandpa. I'm not sure, she shrugs. That was the worst one yet. She quickly describes everything about the vision to Colin, and he listens intently. This is Lyra's favorite thing about him. When you speak to Colin, he stops what he is doing and he focuses solely on you. He makes you feel heard, makes you feel valued and important. It breaks her heart a little to know that he has often felt unimportant. It would be nice if there was some sort of guide to follow, Colin says when Lyra is done speaking. Something like, have a vision about fighting with the void? Here's exactly what that means. Lyra snort laughs and Colin smiles, glad she seems to be feeling better. When he first heard her screams, he'd been absolutely terrified that somehow the salt on their windowsills had been broken and a creature managed to get into the house. His magic had been like a song in his blood, heeding his call immediately. But then he entered her room and found only Lyra thrashing about on her bed and knew she was having a vision. I need to talk to Mrs. Bell about them, she says, drawing Colin back to the present. She needs to know everything I've seen. Maybe she'll be able to interpret them, or at least tell me why I've been having them suddenly. Colin nods. I think she'll be able to help you. More than I can, at least. Lyra pats his shoulder. You've been a great shoulder to cry on, Colin. Don't dismiss what you've done for me. He shrugs, his cheeks heating a little at the compliment. It's what friends do. It is. Lyra curls up on the couch and gets comfortable, eventually falling back asleep despite the horrifying vision she had. Colin is too restless, too amped up from being woken suddenly by Lyra's screams. He gets up, pulls on one of his old cardigans, and heads outside, 
sitting on the wooden steps that wrap around the outside of Lost Fiction. It's still mostly dark out, and the wind has only gotten worse in the past few days, but he feels content to sit and stare off into space. The last couple of days have been a wild ride, but tonight's patrol had been tame. None of the four of them came across any creatures, and while perhaps he should be celebrating that fact, Colin can't help but feel uneasy at the sudden quiet. There were shrieks coming from the forest, but nothing even so much as wandered into town. Colin feels a raindrop land on the tip of his nose, and he glances up. More drops land on his face, and with a sigh, he prepares to get up and head inside. Movement at the edge of the tree line catches Colin's attention, and he focuses, holding his breath as the rain steadily falls harder around him. There, something large creeps forward, sticking to the shadows but not making any attempts to keep its approach hidden. Colin's heart leaps into his throat as the thing moves, cat-like in its approach, closer to the edge of the woods. He catches a glimpse of a cloaked humanoid form, a large head with too many eyes and a mouth dripping with saliva and spread wide in a grin that reveals several rows of sharp, jagged teeth. The creature before him is unlike anything he's ever seen before, and with its intelligent yellow eyes, Colin has a feeling there is absolutely nothing else like it. He rises slowly to his feet, feeling his magic surge once again, but the creature before him shakes its head and backs slowly into the forest, disappearing in the dark once again. This is Raven, host and story writer of Mountain Hill Radio, here with just a few quick things to say. First off, I want to thank everyone for your patience with this episode. You guys are so awesome, and I really hope this episode was worth the wait. I'm going to be sticking to the same release schedule, which means not only are you getting this episode today, but Season 1, Episode 4 is going to be out on February 28th as planned. After that, we will be back to the regular posting schedule, which means one episode every other week. I wanted to say a quick thank you to Rosie, my very amazing friend who designed the new logo and cover art for Mountain Hill Radio. You can find her on Instagram as at dollypopart, that is at D-O-L-L-I-P-O-P dot A-R-T. I am so proud to be able to use her art to represent the show. All music is written and performed by Zach Bradshaw. You can find him as Nautilus of the Tide on all streaming platforms. Thank you so much again for listening to the show. Knowing that people enjoy Mountain Hill Radio seriously makes me so happy, and I am so grateful to each and every one of you who listens every time a new episode comes out. I hope your days are beautiful, and I hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. calls an emergency meeting in Lost Fiction an hour before Rufus and Dorothy each need to report to their jobs. 
Dorothy is only working a few hours today, going over the ropes with one of the employees at the diner, and Rufus is heading out of Mountain Hill to pick up some things at the warehouse that some of the residents ordered. The walk to the old bookstore is longer than usual, with Rufus and Dorothy walking close together to shelter under their shared umbrella. Rufus is getting hit with the most amount of rain, using his giant body to shield her from the worst of it. Dorothy doesn't mind the proximity. He's warm, and it sure beats the alternative. They are too focused to talk as they head towards lost fiction, too determined to get there as quickly as possible despite the rapidly worsening weather. Still, Dorothy knows Rufus is as worried as she is. According to him, Lyra has never called an emergency meeting before. Whatever happened between when they parted ways last night and this morning just can't be good. When they finally make it to the old bookstore, Mrs. Bell is waiting for them by the door, holding out towels and shoving mugs of hot cocoa into their hands. Dorothy is hardly able to say thank you before they are ushered back towards the break room and shoved down into the chairs at the table. Lyra stands, leaning against the counter, and Colin sits with his head in his hands. There's a blue dinosaur on the table in front of him. A stegosaurus, if Dorothy remembers anything about dinosaurs at all. It's one of those with the fins on its back, one she always remembers being the common favorite of children when she was in school. What's that? Rufus asks, wrapping his towel around his shoulders and holding his mug of cocoa in both hands. Dorothy follows suit, sighing in relief as warmth slowly works its way back into her hands and down her arms. Colin picks up the blue dinosaur and holds it so they can both see the stomach. The name Sammy is scrawled there, and Dorothy's heart feels like it might burst from her chest at the sight. She hasn't always been super fond of kids, but that doesn't mean she doesn't feel awful knowing there is a family out there dealing with the loss of their son. Colin found that while patrolling last night, Lyra says. We think whoever took Sammy left that as a warning. At first, I thought it might have been the imps, Colin says, but now I'm not so sure. Dorothy frowns. Why not? Because of what he saw last night, Lyra pushes away from the counter. There's something stalking us, something new. Colin shudders. I went out to get some fresh air before the rain started. The creature, the beast, was behind Lost Fiction. It was watching me, and when I started to draw on my magic, it shook its head like it knew what I was doing. I have a feeling that the sudden inactivity last night is related to this beast, Lyra says. And the beast is connected to the woman Rufus saw. Either they're working together, or the beast is just another creature to be controlled by her. Are we certain the mark were being controlled by her? Rufus asks. Maybe it's all some big coincidence. Lyra shrugs. I don't know. Right now, all we have to go off of are theories. Tonight, though, we will find out for certain. Lyra launches into an explanation of their new plan. Rufus and Colin are going to go to the lake, while Lyra and Dorothy patrol along the river. She wants Rufus to show Colin where he saw the woman the other night, and for them to patrol the area in an effort to discover who she was and where she went. She and Dorothy will look for signs of the murk, and try to discover if there truly is a connection between those creatures and the strange blonde woman. What if we find the murk? Dorothy asks. You said none of you were able to kill them. If we find the murk, we run. We will not engage them. We will run towards the lake, and once we find Colin and Rufus again, we will head back to town and hope that your bike will do the trick in scaring them off again. <sighs> I hate having to run, but right now, that is our best option until we know what and who we are up against. I know we're not just facing our everyday run-of-the-mill creatures. There is something bigger at work here, and until we find out exactly what it is, our best bet is to run and keep running until we learn everything we need to know. What about the beast Colin saw? Rufus asks. 
Lyra shakes her head. Do not engage it until we know what it is or what it wants. It could have attacked Colin earlier, but it didn't. Maybe it's a friendly creature? Though they're all hopeful that this is the case, they all have their doubts. Nothing they've faced so far has been friendly. Even the imps, despite the occasional help they provide, haven't declared themselves as friend or foe. Rufus and Dorothy finish their hot cocoa before braving the pouring rain once more. Rufus walks her to work before heading off towards the small warehouse building he uses to store his truck and the various items he needs for shipping in and out of Mountain Hill. He's anxious to head back to the lake again, anxious to find out who that woman he saw was and how she's connected to everything. He wants to believe everything is a coincidence, but there have been far too many coincidental things to really believe that. From the merc ignoring her in favor of attacking him, to the beast Colin saw last night, everything has happened too close together for there not to be some meaning to it. He just wishes he knew exactly what it was he was looking for. Even with all the knowledge from the journals, none of them know what the creatures truly are, nor do they know where they came from. If they came from a world where other, higher intelligent beings lived, what was stopping those beings from invading Earth? And how did kidnapping children play into any of this? Rufus works with a robot-like efficiency, totally on autopilot as he takes inventory, fills his truck, and makes deliveries to the various businesses in Mountain Hill. Luann, from the coffee shop a few doors down from Lost Fiction, gives him a free cup of coffee in exchange for his help unpacking the boxes he delivered. The day goes on like this, and the rain continues to pour. When Rufus finishes up for the day and locks up his little warehouse, he finds Dorothy waiting for him underneath an awning, holding two umbrellas in her hands. He grins at her, accepting his umbrella when she hands it to him. He insisted she hold on to it earlier, despite her protests. His is a plain black, but the one she picked up somewhere today is red with black polka dots, and he says, Ladybug, huh? She smirks. Ladybugs are cool as hell. He raises his hands, his smile growing wider. I didn't say otherwise. Good, she says, walking towards Lost Fiction. I'd hate to have to fight you about it. Rufus's brows rise, and for some reason, he believes she would throw down over this. Over anything, really. Dorothy is a fighter, fierce and protective, and he feels fortunate that fate demanded she be here, fighting this fight with the three of them. They'll need her for everything coming their way. Lyra is reorganizing one of the sci-fi shelves, zoned out as much as possible while doing this task. This has become her pet project in the past months, whenever business is especially slow. Reorganizing the books into some semblance of order, finding enjoyment in separating books into different genres, and then putting them in order according to the author's last names, and breaking it down even further according to titles. Lyra believes she was meant to be a librarian, and as she looks down at her black button-up with pug doodles patterned like polka dots across it, tucked into her high-waisted jeans and her blue high tops, she decides she was definitely meant to be a librarian. The bell above the door jingles, and a dripping Dorothy and Rufus enter the shop, slipping their umbrellas into the holder beside the door. Mrs. Bell put a towel under it earlier, and Lyra knows just with their umbrellas, she'll already have to replace it later. They're bickering about whether ladybugs or pillbugs are cooler, and Lyra grins as she hears Rufus say, They're literally called roly-polies. What isn't there to like about them? Ladybugs are red, Dorothy says, and have black dots on them. That's the coolest look. Roly-polies literally just roll into a ball if you flick them, which is mean, by the way. You two fight like an old married couple, Renford says, appearing suddenly from the break room like a ghost. I should know. 
Lyra bites her cheek to contain her smile when she notices Rufus's cheeks flush bright red. Dorothy, bless her, doesn't acknowledge Rufus's embarrassment. She looks at Renford and says, Do you like ladybugs or roly-polies better? Renford looks contemplative for a moment, appearing to weigh his options before saying, Well, dear, I'd have to say ladybugs are cooler. Dorothy whoops, lifting her hand for a high five. Renford obliges, chuckling softly as Rufus shakes his head. Despite his obvious defeat, he's still smiling. Colin comes down the stairs a little while later, and after a meal Mrs. Bell prepared for them at her house, homemade chicken noodle soup and turkey and cheese sandwiches, Renford and Mrs. Bell depart, leaving the team behind to discuss their plans for tonight once more. Lyra goes over the routes again and reminds them all not to engage with anything unfamiliar. We know the Merc have poisoned claws, and we know they're basically unkillable. There's no reason to fight them when running is a far better alternative. Lyra looks each of them in the eye. If any of us finds that blonde woman or the beast Colin saw last night, same rules as the Merc. You run and you do not look back until you've made it back to safety. Until we know for sure what we're facing or how in hell we're supposed to fight them, we can't risk any of us getting hurt or worse. Everyone good with that? Everyone nods and finally, the team gets ready to head out. Rufus and Dorothy leave their umbrellas behind, opting instead to brave the rain in their jackets. Lyra and Colin pull on windbreakers she found in the back of her closet. Her and Rufus's weapons are in one of the storage closets, and Dorothy shows that she has one knife sheathed on her thigh, as well as one tucked into her boot. When Lyra raises her brow, she grins and says, There are more, don't worry. She eyes Dorothy's jacket, wondering if she has them strapped inside the jacket like some shady knife seller, but she doesn't ask. She doesn't really want to know. Finally, once everyone feels as prepared as they possibly can be, they head out. They all walk together until they reach Greensland Park, where they split at the trail and head their separate ways. Rufus and Colin are silent for a while as they walk, not really sure what to say as each of them feel the weight of their responsibility to this town pressed down on their chests. The rain is loud here, somehow louder than anywhere else in town as it falls through the trees, crashing down around them. Finally, as they near the lake, Colin turns to Rufus and says, Do you think the storm is connected to everything that's happening? Rufus glances at Colin, who looks absolutely miserable in the downpour. He bites his cheek to contain his smile. I think it'd be too damn coincidental otherwise. Colin shoves his hands into his pockets. Have you ever thought about where the creatures could be coming from? Like, is it another planet somehow? Or do you think they're coming from an alternate dimension? Rufus shrugs. No idea. It'd be kind of cool, though. If it were aliens, I mean. Colin laughs. Yeah, no matter what it is, it's all pretty wild. They both fall silent as they reach the end of the woods, the line of trees that slowly thins out until there's nothing but a gravel path. They're totally exposed here, for at least another quarter mile, until they reach the path that leads down to the beach. Colin's eyes widen as he takes in the lake ahead of them. It stretches far, but off in the distance, he can just make out an island, shrouded in mist and veiled by darkness. But there, in that darkness... He can see the faint glow of light. His magic flares to life, taking on a will of its own as they grow nearer to the water's edge. He frowns, pulling his hand from his pocket, almost expecting to find something different about it as he feels that buzzing he so often feels whenever he allows his magic to come to the surface. But there's nothing there. No hint that anything is any different at all. Colin? Rufus asks, looking him over. His face is pinched with concern when he meets Colin's eyes. You good? Colin nods, shaking his hand. It just feels different here, like we're surrounded by magic. Rufus frowns, glancing around. 
This is just about the exact spot I saw her. She was standing over there, he says, gesturing to a point about 20 feet away. But with the way the storm is hammering us, we aren't going to find any trace of her here. Not unless she wants to be found, I suspect. I think you're right. He glances around, and something near where Rufus pointed glimmers, catching his eye. He approaches slowly, cautiously, with Rufus following behind. He has his axe raised, poised at the ready in case something attempts to jump out at them. But when Colin gets to the glimmering thing, he frowns a little as he discovers it's nothing but a coin. His frown deepens when he stoops, picking up the strange item and turning it over in his hand. It's a little larger than a 50 cent piece, and it looks almost like it was handmade, with little dents almost as if it were struck by a hammer. There's a square hole in the center, only a couple inches wide, with small characters engraved around the edges. Colin inspects it a little closer, deciding these markings must be of a foreign language. Perhaps the language of the beings that have crossed over? He flips the coin over and, etched into the other side, are two faces, silhouetted like the coins he is familiar with. One of the faces is vaguely human-shaped, but with long, pointed ears. The other face is similar, but with its mouth open wide, four sharp fangs protruding from the top and bottom rows of teeth. The coin feels almost warm to the touch, despite the chilly air and the rain falling in sheets from the sky. His stomach drops as he realizes this coin must have recently, very recently, been dropped here. Rufus, we need to get the fuck out of here, he says, rising to his feet and pocketing the coin. He's not sure what he can learn from it, but having an item like this, that is from whatever other world these creatures come from, might come in handy one day. What is it? What did you find? Rufus looks nervous, glancing around the beach, assessing for a threat. I'll explain later, but we need to. Colin is cut off by the sound of a dark, deep laugh coming from directly behind them. Rufus and Colin whirl, coming face to face with the beast. Nothing? Lyra asks. Dorothy shakes her head. They've been wandering around the river for nearly an hour now, to no avail. Lyra isn't sure, really, what she expected to find, but she'd at least hoped for something. Anything that might explain what the Merc are, or where they came from, or how to, you know, kill the damn things. She sighs, swinging her bat back and forth idly. Do you think the guys found anything? Dorothy asks as she kicks yet another rock into the rushing water. The river is deeper, wider than it was a few days ago. Lyra wonders if this area is at risk for flooding, then decides the flood would be devastating, yes, but not nearly as bad as the Merc being allowed to run amok, killing the townspeople of Mountain Hill. Still, she makes a mental note to ask Mrs. Bell if there is a risk, and what might be done to lessen that risk. I'm stuck between hoping they haven't and hoping they have. We need some sort of lead, but I really don't want them to get into trouble. Me neither, Dorothy says. Her eyes grow haunted, shadows invading the bright blue of her irises. They're only there for a moment, but it's long enough for Lyra to feel her heart squeeze in her chest. She decides to change the subject, to distract Dorothy from the dark place she has so clearly fallen into. So, you and Rufus seem to be getting along pretty well. Dorothy nods. He's one of the nicest guys I've ever met, truth be told. Then again, there weren't a whole lot of them where I come from. Lyra snorts. Same. Not a lot of nice women either. Dorothy smiles. Can I ask you a super personal question? Lyra begins walking, heading north along the river. I'm lesbian. Dorothy laughs, walking side by side with her. Not the personal question I was talking about, but I'm glad you feel comfortable enough to tell me. Lyra shrugs. Figured you might as well know. Colin and Rufus know, and so do the Bells. Well, thank you. 
Dorothy sighs. Do you have family outside of this town? Yeah, mom and dad, though I'm not super close with them. We had a difference of opinion when it came to deciding my career path. They're both surgeons and damn good at what they do. They expected me to follow in that path, but that was never the life for me. She shrugs. I tried, though. Went to school, studied my ass off, got good grades. But then I met Jennifer and, well, we were together a long time. And when things ended, it sort of put things into perspective for me. Everyone in my life, everyone I cared about most, said they only ever wanted what was best for me. But when I found out Jennifer was cheating on me and stealing from me, it made me realize that even though those people cared about me, they never really had my best interests at heart. So I dropped out of school, quit my job, and abandoned my lease at the place I shared with Jennifer. During all the fallout, I just happened to stumble across a classifieds ad searching for a tenant and employee to manage lost fiction. She smiles, touched sadly. I don't miss that life. I was a shadow of myself, and I never really knew it. Now here, I have a place, a purpose. People who love me and genuinely care about me and want me to be happy. I get to read as much as I like, whatever I like, and live in one of the strangest towns in existence. It's a good life. Dorothy is silent, thinking. Finally, she asks, Do you keep in touch with your parents? Haven't heard from them in a while, Lyra says. I tried keeping up weekly family phone calls, but they're busy. Always have been. And honestly, it's probably for the best I don't hear from them super often anyways. Mom has a habit of making me feel about two inches tall about this whole situation. Says it was selfish of me to abandon them, to drop out of school, and leave them scrambling to keep up their good reputation. Apparently, having your only child up and jump ship like I did makes parents look bad. I'm sorry to hear all that, Dorothy says, and she sounds like she means it. Thank you, but that's not necessary. I've come to terms with it all at this point, Lyra shrugs. What about you? Dorothy opens her mouth to respond, but then there's a scream miles to the north, from the lake. What the fuck? Dorothy breathes, but then the sound comes again, and this time, they're both running before the scream finishes echoing. Hello, Colin, the beast says, his hands behind his back. His yellow eyes move over Colin before looking over Rufus. And Rufus. Colin's breath catches in his throat at the sight of this creature. He's tall, at least seven feet tall, and now that they're standing less than 50 feet away from each other, Colin can see that his skin is stretched taut over his face. His teeth are sharp, and as he speaks, they click against each other. He smiles at them now, wide and terrifying. It is good to finally meet you face to face, he says, his voice raspy and broken. I have been watching you, waiting for you to return to this place, to finally leave your friends. What do you want? Rufus asks. The beast shrugs, clicking his teeth as his smile grows impossibly wider. To speak to the one born with magic in his blood. Colin feels himself shrink, trying to make himself smaller to go unnoticed by the beast they are now confronted with. It doesn't work as the creature's yellow eyes narrow on him, taking a step closer. Not any closer, Rufus snaps, holding his axe as if he's ready to strike. The beast's gaze returns to him and he sighs. I wish only to speak, brute. He takes another step. To confirm what I already suspect after watching you these past nights, Colin has magic in his blood. Magic that does not belong to him. Another step forward. Colin, Rufus murmurs, you need to get out of here. I'm not leaving you, Colin says. 
There is no need to run, the beast calls, for there is nowhere you can hide that I will not find you, Colin Hayes. What do you want with me? Colin asks, surprised at how steady his voice sounds despite the utter terror roaring through him now. I wish to give you an ultimatum. Come with me, and we will return the boy, Sammy Rowan felt. In exchange for you, he will be returned to his family, safe and unharmed. The beast shrugs, holding his hands out before him. You will not be harmed either, should you come with me. Colin's stomach drops, and he exchanges a quick glance with Rufus. The beast confirmed Sammy is alive, but... You can't have him, Rufus says. The beast shrugs. I was trying to be... amicable, but it seems my efforts are wasted. I'd hoped by separating you from your friends, perhaps you'd see reason and come quietly. It seems I was mistaken. Well... In the blink of an eye, the beast is before them, and his... Colin's stomach bottoms out as his mind manages to catch up with the scene unfolding before him. Rufus has dropped his axe, and his mouth is open in a scream that makes Colin's blood run cold. The beast's hand is pressed to Rufus's chest. No, not just pressed, but his claws are digging into the skin above his heart. Colin doesn't think, doesn't do anything besides react. His magic buzzes over his skin, and pure blinding white lightning crackles across his arms, over his knuckles, and he is throwing his hand out, connecting his palm with the side of the beast's neck. The lightning pours out from him onto the beast, and the beast's hand yanks from Rufus's chest, dropping him to the ground in a massive heap. The beast shrieks just a second later, full of pain and rage as the lightning chars his skin. You will pay for this, the beast seethes, falling away from Colin and backing far out of reach. My mistress will punish you, Colin Hayes, and you will wish you would have taken my offer. Colin rolls his eyes, playing at bravado he doesn't truly feel. Tell your mistress to come for me herself next time. The beast hisses, and in the blink of an eye, he's gone. Lyra arrives only a few minutes later, finding Colin over a crumpled Rufus, trying to use his magic to heal him from whatever injuries he received that caused him to scream like he had. She rushes to his side immediately, Dorothy in tow and demands, What happened? Colin shakes his head. It's not working. Colin, focus, Lyra says, crouching beside him and putting her hand on his shoulder. What happened here? What's not working? The beast, he found us, Colin says, his voice shaking with barely restrained emotion. He hurt Rufus. Lyra looks at Rufus then, looking him over for injury. Indeed, there are five tears in the fabric of his shirt. Five spots where blood is welling. Colin's hands are glowing white with his healing magic, but still... As she watches, the wounds refuse to close. Are you healing him? Dorothy asks, her voice breathless and terrified. Colin looks up at her, then turns to Lyra, his eyes full of a desperation she feels clawing its way into her heart. He shakes his head slowly, tears beginning to stream down his face. It's not working. My magic can't heal him anymore.